Over the holiday break, we are bringing you The Sound Aquatic, a five-episode mini-podcast published by Hakai Magazine in May of 2021. Here's episode two, How Not to Get Lost in the Ocean. What would you do if you were lost in the woods? If you plan to go off-grid, chances are you've got a map or an old-school compass. Or perhaps you're one of those amazing folks who can chart their way by gazing up at the Big Dipper. According to rescue workers, most of us pull out our phone and try to Google map our way out of trouble. Where do I go next? Under the sea, animals don't have any of these devices. Yet billions of ocean animals still find their way. How do they do it? Many use something you might not have thought of. They use sound. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and you are listening to episode two of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropods. Click your red heels because this episode is all about finding your way home. After all, there's no place like home. gonna start with an easy one. <laughs> oh no now it is <laughs> okay that that I think is a whale sound is that right? That's correct it's a humpike whale sound. Okay good one for one. <laughs> I'm on a call with Shima Abadi, an expert in animal bioacoustics at the University of Washington. And we're playing a little game of Guess That Ocean Sound. Okay. I'm going to play this one. Oh. <laughs> Can you give me a hint? <laughs> it is man-made noise. Is it, a, is it a, an engine, like a ship sound? Yes, it's a ship noise. It's a research vessel at... About 14 kilometers from the hydrophone. Okay, let's play another one. Okay, now that one to my ear sounds really a lot the same as the one I just heard. Is that also a ship sound? It is not. It's um, rain, actually. Shima has made her point. The ocean is a noisy place. A soundscape of fish grunts, crashing waves, wind, rain, and snapping shrimp. We'll come back to that one. Oh, and then there's sounds like these. That's the sound of the earthquake that erupted off the coast of Japan in 2011. You're listening to an underwater recording but not one recorded in Japan. This recording comes from a Navy listening station in Alaska, 900 kilometers away from the epicenter. Clearly, sound travels really far underwater and really fast, about four and a half times faster than it does through air. 
And something as simple as the sound of a raindrop can get super complicated when you add in ocean physics, as our producer, Amy Kingdon, explains. The way that rain makes sound is it creates a bubble in the ocean. The bubble oscillates and pops. If it's a small bubble, it's a high sound. And if it's a big bubble, it's a low sound. And so she's like, if you have big raindrops, they make a lower sound, but they also make a quieter sound because the they create so much froth at the surface, especially if it's windy, that it the sound can't move through the water as well. And so you actually have like a dampening effect. Wow. Whereas if you have like a medium sized rain on a very calm ocean, it's going to be much louder because it's going to come down and travel th more through the water. And so there was this whole physics and this whole like thing about raindrops on the ocean. These properties help to explain why sound is the number one sense of choice for so many ocean animals. Sound is paramount, not just for singing humpback whales, but for everything from tiny larvae to octopuses to fish. It's understandable. Dream with me for a moment. Imagine you are an ocean animal. Which of your senses matters most in this watery world? Your glorious human eyesight wouldn't help you much down here. Below 200 meters, it's functionally nighttime, 24 hours a day. Even in shallower coastal waters, where many fish and other animals live, it's often murky, silty, sometimes even opaque. You can't see much at all. You would quickly discover your senses of taste and smell are limited too. Smell does travel in the currents, but it doesn't really carry very far or tell you in what direction something is happening. However, if you're like most ocean animals that have been studied so far, smell and taste may not be able to help you much with navigation. So what's left? Hearing. You quickly discover you can hear pebbles shifting on the ocean floor, and ice cracking, mud slumping, rain falling. You can even hear the sound of teeny tiny plants called phytoplankton. The ping of algae turning sunlight into energy adds to this glorious marine soundscape. You can also hear other animals. You can hear whales calling. You can hear predators coming. You can hear crabs clacking. You can hear the entire ocean ecosystem. I would suggest that anybody goes snorkeling and just Hold your breath with your ears underwater and really focus on what you hear. And it's, it's just such a noise-rich environment underwater when you really start listening. I'm chatting with Isabel Cote, a marine biologist at Simon Fraser University. She's got a theory that it's possible to tell how healthy a coral reef is by listening to the sounds of the reef itself. A healthy reef is a loud reef. So from the loudness of the sound that you can hear on a reef, particularly at night, um, you can deduce how much coral there is on the reef. So we have a basically a sound index to reef health. When you have a lot of coral, you tend to have a lot of what we call architectural complexity. You, can, you have lots of holes and crevices and lots of places for animals to hide. And that's the relationship to sound. So the more habitat there is for those invertebrates, the more invertebrates there are, and the louder the sound the reef seems to be making. 
Wow. And what kind of invertebrates are making the sounds and how do they do it? Yeah, so the um, the the loudest ones, the loudest invertebrates on the reefs are called snapping shrimps. And you very rarely see them. Actually, in, in my decades of working on reefs, I've never seen a snapping shrimp because they do tend to hide pretty deeply in the reef. It, the sound is a bit like um, when you pour milk uh, in a bowl of Rice Krispies. They are a kind of shrimp that has a huge claw. As the claw closes, the, the water sort of cavitates and the, the bubble uh, collapses. And that, that makes essentially a bang sound that is extremely loud. Um, I mean, extremely loud at the scale of a small shrimp. <laughs> right. But uh, sort of scaled up, people have said that it's as loud as a... a a jet plane taking off. Really? According to Isabel, it's not just researchers who can distinguish a healthy reef from a less healthy reef by the sounds it's producing. Through an intriguing study she did in the Bahamas, Isabel discovered that baby fish find their way to healthy reefs by listening. So fish and invertebrates, marine fish and marine invertebrates, most of them spend the first part of their life cycle as little tiny larvae that float around. And eventually uh, they have to settle somewhere. So they choose where to go. They have a, a, a certain amount of choice because most of these larvae, even though they're just a few millimeters long, they do have swimming ability and they do follow various cues to figure out where the best place is to settle. And it turns out that sound um, is one of the cues that they use to decide to settle in one place rather than another one. So it's a, it's a short distance cue. They probably use other things when they're further away from the reef. They might use smell, for example. But as they get closer to a reef, sound kicks in and little larval fish can discriminate between the sound of a healthy reef and the sound of an unhealthy reef. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And can you tell me how those tiny larvae, in general, if I'm thinking of something that's only a few millimeters long, you know, what aspect of their bodies is actually hearing? Yeah, so they, they have inner ears. They have lateral lines. The lateral line is basically a pressure system and sound at the end of the day is a wave, right? And it, it causes pressure on the body of the fish. So they detect that in a way that we can't really relate to because we don't have that, that means of hearing, like the whole body hearing. Wow, whole body hearing. You know, if you, um, if you stood against a big speaker that's very loud, you, you feel like you're hearing with your whole body as opposed to just your ears, right? You can feel everything inside, especially the air pockets, you know, your lungs and so on. You can, you can feel the vibration. Um, that's my approximation maybe of what it feels like. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I know when, when I run in the forest in the, in the spring, I often hear grouse, which is a low sound. Uh, but interestingly, I literally, I feel the grouse more than I can hear the grouse. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's that, that deep 
drumming um, and you feel the percussiveness yeah. of it. Except the in this case, things like snapping shrimp produce very high frequency sounds as opposed to low frequency sounds. So I, I don't think I can explain. I definitely can't relate to the, the f whole body hearing of high frequency sounds. Well, if you could relate to tiny a uh, couple of millimeter zooplankton that would be really yes <laughs> really impressive <laughs> isabel and her team wanted to prove whether it was sound or some other characteristic drawing these larvae to the reefs she employed a rather notorious test subject to help her solve the mystery like most other places in the caribbean uh, about uh, a dozen years ago or so the Bahamian reefs were invaded by lionfish from the Indo-Pacific. And these are, these are beautiful fish, but they're predators and they eat a lot of very small fish. It got me thinking about the possibility that lionfish were altering the soundscape of reefs because, you know, they're eating the sound producing animals. So for several years, we'd kept the number of lionfish really low on some reefs. And on other reefs, we hadn't controlled them, so the numbers were higher. I, I didn't realize at the time <laughs> that most of this work was going to be basically between 10 p.m. and 3 in the morning. And it was fascinating for what we ended up finding as well, um, which was that the reefs with a lot of lionfish were much quieter than the reefs without a lot of lionfish. That's, that's amazing. So it's kind of like a double whammy effect. They're eating the fish, they're, making, they're also making the reef quieter, so there's fewer little fish coming in to replace the ones being eaten. So that, that might be partly, just a small part of the explanation for why they've had such a drastic effect on some reefs. Ocean soundscapes are like fingerprints of individual ecosystems. Tiny fish larvae are using the soundscape of a healthy reef to find their way to something good a vibrant home. Francis Juanes, professor of fisheries at the University of Victoria, tells me that some researchers are now experimenting with using the way fish are attracted to healthy soundscapes to help coral reefs impacted by climate change to recover. So we know on coral reefs that if we uh, play back the sound of a healthy coral reef in a degraded one, fish will come they will settle onto that reef and begin the process of recovering that reef. And so, again, that's a very unique experiment in one location, but it suggests that that sound could be used to, to make environments healthier. Of course, wayfinding is about much more than just knowing where you are and in what direction you're heading. Once an animal finds a home, the next priority is finding a bite to eat. This is Fernwood, a trendy little neighborhood in Victoria, British Columbia, that just so happens to be pretty much the same distance from my house, Kat's house, and Amy's house. Which brings us to that eternal dilemma. Well, my lovelies, I think we should get a drink or a bite to eat or something. Starving. Where should we go? In these COVID times, we're just going to get some takeout. But there's still a lot of hustle and bustle here. People in masks talking, meeting, laughing, catching up living their lives while socially distancing. You know, but I do hear, like, down around the corner there, it sounds like there's some people having a good time, which I just finished teaching. I could really enjoy that. We end up picking a place to eat based on the cues of other people, people who have made this choice before and sound like they're happy with it. 
pretty much everybody tends to go where the sounds are the most welcoming. And it's the same underwater too. Seals and sea lions listen for the sounds of the fish they love to eat. Some fish in turn listen for the rustling swimming sounds of the little plankton they find delicious. When it comes to finding food, there's a particular group of whales that aren't content with just passive listening. They use sound as a tool to zero in on their food. Those clicks you hear? Those are the echolocation clicks of a hunting killer whale. And that silence? That's the sound of a salmon getting chomped. In the case of killer whales detection of a, of a Chinook salmon in the distance acoustically, with their sonar, um, we've calculated or estimated that, that they might detect a salmon with their echolocation, maybe at about 100 meters range in quiet conditions. John Ford is a legendary killer whale researcher who's been studying the sounds killer whales make and the importance of sound to killer whale culture for many decades. If anyone knows about the resident killer whales hunting fish along the BC coast, it's him. John tells me that resident killer whales actively adjust the energy distribution of their echolocation clicks, depending on whether they're orienting to their surroundings or zooming in on a tasty fish. I think that, uh, that they are so acoustically sophisticated and capable that when they come into an area and they're using their their social calls, uh, their dialects to keep in touch and so on, or even their sonar clicks, that these all have a, a pattern of reverberation that is, is unique to a particular place. And I, I really believe this plays a huge role in the animal's uh, use of their habitat and recognition of where they are, their orientation in it, is by these multitude of, of sort of, I guess, passive uh, feedbacks they get from their acoustic environment. Imagine being able to see your way through pitch black darkness by listening to ambient sounds and by producing and listening for echolocation clicks. Well, it turns out that people can learn to use echolocation too. I was born with retinal blastoma, which is cancer of the eyes. My eyes were removed by about the time I was a year old. By about the age of 15 to 18 months, I began clicking, or so I'm told. That click allows me, as a blind person, to see. That's Daniel Kish speaking at La Ciudad de las Ideas Festival in 2015. He sees his environment as a series of images created in his mind based on what he hears using echolocation clicks he produces with his mouth. Recent brain scans of myself and some people I've worked with have shown that when you learn this technique, it is the visual brain that is processing the sound. So it's not just what we hear, it is what we see in our, in our brain. That was a revolutionary finding to brain science. Daniel is so accomplished at producing clicks and listening for their echoes in much the same way killer whales, sperm whales, belugas, and other toothed whales do, that he's able to hike unfamiliar terrain and even to ride a bike. 
One of the most extreme examples of ocean animals using sound for wayfinding happens in a place called Cook Inlet in Alaska. Well, the first thing about Cook Inlet that you notice that's very striking even above the water is that it is completely opaque. Like, um, it's uh, the water is basically looks like a latte or like chocolate milk. The inlet is completely surrounded by this mountain range and all these streams are running off the mountains all the time, eroding away the land. We talk about how sound is very important underwater because vision is limited. Here it's not even a factor. <laughs> Amy Kingdon, our fearless podcast producer, traveled to Cook Inlet to report on a remarkable group of belugas who live in this complicated Arctic environment all year round. It's not just the dark, frigid, opaque water they have to contend with, it's the tides. Cook Inlet has one of the highest tides in the world. Imagine that you've got this incredibly cold, very opaque and dark water and the depth of it changes but you're a beluga and you eat salmon and those salmon are coming out of all these stream mouths all along the edge of the inlet so you're you're playing this game of timing the whole time and all of these creeks are rimmed by these like sucking spreading mud flats and if you're a beluga and you're up there and the water drops and you don't know exactly what channel to swim out on you are going to get stranded and that actually happens a lot up there Cook Inlet belugas live in a funhouse of constantly shifting and changing conditions. They navigate using their superpower, sound. And they they they're so good at finding their way around this inlet that they could they were constantly using that high-pitched sound to sense the depth and they were constantly using just I'm not even sure what sense honestly to judge when the tides changed. And then as they're swimming up there, they're using their sonar to hunt for food that's coming out and watch for branches and stuff that's tumbling around. Belugas are exceptionally vocal whales with a huge repertoire of sounds. They produce echolocation clicks, all kinds of whistles and pulse calls, and signature calls that help them identify one another in a noisy crowd. Belugas make all these sounds despite having no vocal cords. They speak through nasal sacs near their blowholes. In essence, they talk through their noses. They make a lot of sounds above the water with their blowholes. They actually have little structures in their blowholes, much like we have in our throats. And they're called phonic lips, and they can make an insane array of sounds. I mean, it sounded like, you know, somebody throwing something down a culvert, or some cats fighting, like a trombone. So while I'm listening to this ridiculous, playful cacophony kind of above the water, underwater you can hear a whole different range of sound that they're making, this, the clicks and the buzzes and the whistles that are these high-pitched wayfinding sounds. Amy is clearly in awe of belugas. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen in all of my time reporting was what happened when... We were kind of getting towards the end of this whole stakeout, if you will. It was the tide was going to start rising again. And we looked it up on our, you know, sophisticated tide tables that, that Noah puts out. And so we knew that the tide was going to change at, I believe it was 643 that day. And all of a sudden, all the belugas suddenly just started to swim away. And the researcher I was with, he says, I bet you the tide just changed. 
and so I pulled up my iPhone and I looked at the, the clock and it was to the minute, to the minute that the tide changed, that these belugas had sensed this. Belugas are so completely dependent on sound that over millions of years, they've actually evolved a rather wonky skull shape to support their remarkable melons. Researchers at the Natural History Museum in London study the evolution of wonkiness. They say toothed whales, like belugas and killer whales, began to develop wonky skulls about 30 million years ago as they evolved the ability to echolocate in complex places. And wonkiness is on the rise. Whales living in complicated acoustic environments, like the belugas in Cook Inlet, rely so heavily on echolocation they are developing ever more lopsided heads. Next time you walk in your front door, take a moment to notice the familiar noises that tell you that you're home. And then, spare a moment to marvel, whether it's listening for the loud snaps of a healthy coral reef or the crush of ice forming in the Arctic. At this very moment, animals all over the ocean are doing exactly the same thing. They are listening to the sounds of home. In the next episode of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause, we'll immerse you in the sexy side of ocean sounds as we explore the crazy loud dating scene of plain fin midshipmen and what may turn out to be the chaste love songs of fin whales. We'd like to thank Shima Abadi at the University of Washington, Isabel Cote at Simon Fraser University, Francis Juanes of the University of Victoria, and John Ford, Scientist Emeritus at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. This episode of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause was produced by Amy Kingdon, Katrina Pine, and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Adrian Mason, Jude Isabella, and fact-checker Megan Osmond-Jones. We are an endeavor of Hakai Magazine and are produced on the shores of the Salish Sea in Victoria, British Columbia. <laughs>